by way of introduction, by the time you get to Genesis 4, it's really hard to ignore how the first three chapters of this first book of the Bible just ooze the grace of God. From His creation of the world and the universe for man's pleasure, to His formation of a garden that He placed in Eden for man's enjoyment, to His forming of the woman so that man might have a companion. There is no question that God has not only immensely blessed Adam, the man, but He's done so out of the abundance of His grace and His love. I mean, really think about it. What had Adam possibly done by that point to have earned or deserve any of the amazing things that God had just given him? He'd done absolutely nothing. And if all of that weren't enough, even when man deserved really the consequences of death, when he rejected God's love and rebelled by eating of the forbidden fruit, what does the Lord do even in that moment? And another act of his abundant grace, God comes to the garden. He seeks out the sinner, that who was lost. Why? Because God had a plan to redeem man from the fallen condition by providing a Savior. Well, after leaving the Garden of Eden, as they had been commanded to by the Lord, we read in Genesis 4, beginning with verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Cast into a new, vastly different world from the garden they had previously enjoyed, really armed with only just a promise that God was going to provide them a Savior. It doesn't take long for Adam and Eve to do what they had been commanded to do. Adam knew Eve, and she conceived, and they bore a son that they aptly named Cain. Now, in the greater flow of the larger narrative, the naming of this firstborn carries with it really a ton of significance. In the Hebrew language Cain, it means acquired. It would appear, judging by Eve's immediate reaction to his birth, when she declares that she had acquired a man from the Lord, that both she and Adam believed that Cain, this first son, was going to be the Savior that God had promised. That said, it doesn't take very long for Eve to conceive again and have a second son whose name is equally telling. You see, after spending really at a minimum, let's say nine months with the little tight Cain, it appears that the first couple had come to the really honest realization that Cain could not have been the promised Savior. And so to really reflect their disappointment, Adam and Eve named their second son Abel, which means in the Hebrew, emptiness or vanity. I mean, imagine naming a kid such a name. Obviously, Adam and Eve have concluded, even early on, that God's plan to provide them a Savior wasn't going to happen quite as quickly as they may have initially thought it would. Now, before we discuss what happens next, I want to point out how incredibly similar these first two boys would have been to one another, Cain and Abel. Not only were they both born sinners, inheriting the fallen nature of their father, Adam, 
Both of them had not experienced paradise like their parents. But the similarities continue. See, Cain and Abel would have shared identical genetic traits. Really kind of unique to the first kids of humanity. Why? Because their parents possessed identical DNA. Aside from this, Cain and his brother Abel would have also been similar and that they would have grown up in the exact same environment. I mean, really. Same family, same parents, same influences, same culture. You know, Cain and Abel really present an interesting case study to the whole nature versus nurture debate. And the reason being that while they're incredibly similar, the Bible notes that each of these boys had contrasting interests that manifested likely from diverging talents. We're told in the text that that while these boys had almost everything in common, Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was a shepherd, while Cain was a tiller of the ground. So he's a farmer. Both Cain and his brother Abel had unique gifts. And it led each of them to work vastly different jobs. And you can see how both of their roles uh, would have been important for this first family. As you would imagine, as you'd think, Cain, his fields would have yielded an abundance of food. While Abel's herds would have provided wool for clothing as well as milk. Now, now again, before we continue, let me add one additional observation about these two boys. Though Cain and Abel grew up with parents, Adam and Eve, I mean, who had walked with God, right, in the cool of the evening, uh, clearly their parents, same parents, possessed a strong faith in God. But it will be It'll become evident as we work our way through our story this morning how the spiritual qualities of the parents are not exactly hereditary. We'll see this in Cain and Abel. And I bring this up to just let you know, parents, that while there is no question that you can and really do have a profound influence in your children's spiritual lives and development, never ever forget that faith, your faith in God and Jesus is not something that you can bequeath. You see, every single person born into this fallen rock will have to make a decision for themselves at some point whom they will serve. I mean, here in our story, we have two boys, in some ways different, but in many ways the same, left to make their own decisions as it pertains to their relationship with God. And as we'll see, the reality is that each of these boys end up choosing a radically different approach, just illustrating the truth that despite the the influences of good parents, kids are still free moral agents in the end. Verse 3, we're told that in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry. And his countenance fell. Please notice how this section begins with a really fascinating phrase. We're told, in the process of time, it came to pass. 
Now, while we can reason, it didn't take very long for Adam to know Eve. Like, you can imagine that. And then, therefore, it wouldn't have taken very long for them to have Cain and follow it up with Abel. We don't really know how much time has transpired since their eviction from Eden. We don't know how much time transpired between the, boy, the births of these boys. And really, when you get into the, the nuances, uh, uh, there's a lot of questions. Questions abound. Like, we aren't sure how old Cain and Abel are by the time we get to this story. We don't know how many years have transpired between verses 2 and 3. We have no idea how many additional siblings that Cain and Abel may have had at this juncture. I think it's safe to say probably a lot. Frankly, we don't know if this is the first time they'd come to make an offering to the Lord, or if this had been an exercise that they'd been doing maybe even for years. Like, all we can say for sure, with confidence, from what the text tells us, is that this story occurs at a particular time, a defined moment. In fact, this phrase, in the process of time, it can be translated as at the end of time or at the end of days. Whether this signified the end of a week, a month, a year, or maybe even something broader like the end of childhood, we can say that there was a specific time, according to the text, that the event we'll look at, the event in question, was to take place. It was determined. The second observation that we can make from the text is the fact that since both Cain and Abel brought an offering, we can reason, aside from this being a prescribed time they were to come, there also seems to be a determined location. Now, there's a lot of theories to this. I happen to believe that it's likely the entrance to the Garden of Eden. That's the last place that God had happened to be. Keep in mind, the entrance to Eden is now being presently guarded by a cherubim, a mighty angel, and a flaming sword. So we know that there was a determined time, a determined location. We also can reason that there was some type of fixed methodology for the activity that they were going to engage in. They brought an offering. I mean, everything about this is highly organized. Now, in light of these things, while the time and the location and the methodology for the activity had been determined, it is important we consider it briefly, like who exactly made these determinations? Like how did they know to do this, when to do this, how it was supposed to be done, where it was supposed to be done, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Now, I think it's wrong to just assume, like many do, that it had to have just been Adam. Like, in no ways does the text allude to it being Adam. Beyond that, there's zero evidence by this point in humanity that there was some type of codified religion. There isn't any evidence that there was some written manuscript or written law that would have dictated these things. Rather, it appears, and this will be vitally important to the story, that because God is involved, and we know that because God rejects one of the offerings and He accepts the other. So God is very much in the story, and it's because of that we can conclude that everything associated with the event had to have been something that God, at some point in time, had communicated to Adam and Eve, who then probably articulated it to their children. Like My point is that the protocols and the procedures that we'll look at were not man-made. This is not something Adam just made up. Rather, they were God-prescribed. While it's true that there's a ton about this story shrouded in mystery, we can say that what was to occur on this particular day 
intended to be an act of worship before the Lord. And I believe it was to be an act of worship designed to commemorate an earlier event that had been recorded for us in Genesis 3. In fact, Genesis 4 really doesn't make any sense apart from an important context established in the previous chapter. Now, I don't want to take a hard right into kind of the narrative here. But following their decision to disobey God, Adam and Eve, their decision to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin entering the human condition, Adam and Eve were told, made for themselves immediately. They made for themselves physical coverings. Something had changed. They felt something. They sensed something. They had to cover themselves. And they used fig leaves, hoping to conceal the fact that they were now naked. They were self-aware. They were insecure. And therefore, they wanted to cover also the shame that came on account of their sin. And yet, as you read through the story, it became painfully evident to this first couple that their outward coverings, these fig leaf coverings, these things that they had made for themselves, were totally ineffective. Like, not even just from a practical sense. I mean, fig leaf coverings are not going to be really durable. But have you ever seen a fig leaf? It's prickly. I mean, these things had, could not have been very comfortable. Like, this is a, something that they, just, they had just done. I mean, they're ineffective. Not just in the practical sense, but they were also ineffective in a spiritual sense, an internal sense. It didn't cover, it didn't mask their inward guilt. This is why that when they heard God walking in the garden, what did Adam and Eve do? <laughs> they attempted to hide themselves from his presence. Now, God, knowing what had happened, and knowing this new dynamic that Adam and his wife Eve were experiencing, following what was to be an articulation of various curses, and really then before he actually expelled them from the garden, God does something in Genesis 3 radical. Radical. In Genesis 3, verse 21, we read that in place of these fig leaf coverings, for Adam and his wife, we read, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, don't misunderstand. Practically speaking, tunics that were made of skin were just as ineffective in dealing with the internal shame caused by sin as the ones that they had woven together using fig leaves. Outward covering. Instead, though, what makes God's actions at the end of Genesis so deeply significant is really what the whole act, the whole exercise, intended to illustrate to Adam and Eve in that specific moment. You see, God was doing more than just covering their naked behinds. God was establishing an important precedent that really sets the trajectory for the entire Bible. And replacing these fig leaves for ones made by God using skin. The Lord was illustrating three important realities. First, God was illustrating that man's best attempts to cover his sin will always prove to be futile. Two, an effective covering, something man couldn't make for himself, was something that only God 
could give to man. It could only be given. And three, in order to provide such a covering, the death of an innocent sacrifice would be required not of man, but of God. Now, now bear, bear with me for just a second. But I want you to just imagine for a moment the reaction to this whole scene of Adam and Eve, who are standing there, they've sinned, they're filled with shame. When God takes an animal from the Garden of Eden, an animal that he had created, and God slaughters it right in front of them. I mean, the horror. Adam and Eve have never seen anything like this before. And then to see the blood drain from its corpse. And then to watch God's skin its hide before sewing together skins to make tunics to clothe them. And then again, imagine the moment after that when God then turns to Adam and Eve and he instructs them to take off their fig leaf miniskirts and put on these new clothes. What must have that been like? The smell of blood? The texture of foreign skin? As God had warned Adam concerning eating of the forbidden fruit, directly following sin, death had entered the created order. And how provocative, really, that it was God who first shed blood on the earth. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that for Adam and Eve, on this day, the, the lesson that God was illustrating had been learned. Man's ultimate remedy for sin could only be provided by a work of God and not one of man. They knew that salvation, when it was all said and done, was something that God would have to do and give it to them. They could never earn it. They would just have to receive it. In his commentary on the book of Genesis, which I would highly rec recommend, 19th century Irish pastor, C.H. McIntosh, he, he writes of this event. He says, The robe which God provided was an effectual covering. Why? Because God provided it. Just as the apron was an ineffectual covering because man had provided it. Powerful. And by the end of this exercise, as they're exiting the garden, Adam and Eve rightly understood two important truths. And really, if you need any theology, these are the two you need. First, the fig leaves emphasize the silliness of their attempt to remedy their sin condition on their own. Like, Adam and Eve looking at figs for the rest of their lives would be like, yeah, our best efforts will always fall very short. Secondly, they also knew that the only way that any sinner would ever be able to approach a righteous God would be through his faith and an atoning death of an innocent sacrifice that God would have to make on their behalf. This explains why in John 3.16 we read what? The heart of the gospel is that for God so loved the world that what? He gave His only begotten Son. It was a gift of God. On a side note, this whole dynamic also clarifies why Jesus was referred to by John the Baptist as what? Not the Lamb of Man, 
to take away the sins of the world, but the Lamb of God. This would be God's sacrifice, God's Lamb. It also explains why Jesus, on his way to atone for the sins of the world, he looks over at a fruitless fig tree. And what does he do? He curses it. You didn't produce fruit in the garden. You don't produce fruit today. You'll never produce any fruit, religion. It's a relationship with me. It's interesting. Now, with all this in mind, look again at what happens. When these two boys come to make an offering before God at this prescribed appointed time. First, let's look at Abel. We read that Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord respected, or literally the Lord accepted Abel and his offering. Now, please don't miss something very subtle about that. Like Within our passage, it's clear that Abel and his offering were intertwined. They were intimately connected with one another. Like Abel's offering revealed Abel's attitude. And then it's also logical that we can surmise that his attitude dictated his offering. They're connected. God accepted Abel and his offering. Now, consider how this entire process would have played out for Abel. And I'm going to use a little creative license, but I want to just kind of paint the picture for you. You know, Abel knows when this particular event's going to happen. He's aware when they're going to be going, when they're going to be making their offerings. He also knows the protocols and the procedures and how this is all supposed to take place. Now, he's a shepherd. And so he goes out into his flock, and he he finds a spotless lamb, a little lamb, a firstborn lamb. Now, you can't leave the lamb out in the field. Too many things could happen to it. I mean, this is the lamb that that, that Abel sets aside. This is going to be a gift to God. Like, this is going to be something significant, something important. It's going to carry weight with it. So he takes it home. Like, he keeps it in his tent because he's got to keep it safe, feed it, make sure it's well cared for. And, And with any animal specifically a little lamb you ever seen a little lamb they're so cute and cuddly i'm sure that in the process of time as abel is caring for this little this little sheep let's just give him a name chepetto that in the process of caring for chepetto and loving on chepetto he develops a connection with chepetto he loves this little lamb He's created a bond. Sleeps at the end of his bed and keeps him warm at night. But then the day comes. Now, Geppetto has no idea what's about to happen. He thinks they're just going for their normal stroll, an evening walk. And yet they get to the the, the prescribed location and the altar. and, And Abel, Abel knows what he's about to have to do. And you can imagine that as Abel is walking up to this altar, this makeshift altar of some kind, we have no idea what it looks like, little Chepetto is, is nestling its head up into his, his chest, looking up with those big little eyes, I love you, I care for you, I trust you entirely. And Abel knows that this is all misguided. He starts to cry. Ever put down an animal? He starts to cry, he starts to weep. Crocodiles, the big ones. Little Geppetto's got no idea what in the world's going on. And as this little lamb's looking up into Abel's eyes, without the lamb knowing, a dagger emerges from behind, and Abel slits 
the throat of this little lamb. Abel watches as love turns to horror in the eyes of this little, little guy. What did I do wrong? Was I not good enough? Abel watches, and again, he's crying even more profusely at this point, as this lamb's life is bleeding out. The white wool turns to scarlet. Blood is all over his arms and his chest and his legs. I mean, Abel, by the, and he's a bloody mess. And then he takes this little lamb. He places it up on the altar. And he steps back and he's weeping and he's crying. And it's like, my sin demanded that? Understand, God accepted Abel's sacrifice because he accepted Abel. You see, Abel was wise in that he humbly approached God the way that God had demanded in the garden, the way he demanded he be approached. Abel was willing to offer a blood sacrifice. Why? To demonstrate faith in a future sacrificial work that God would make, an offering God would provide to atone for his sins. In fact, the Bible validates that this is what's going through Abel's mind. In Hebrews 11, verse 4, we're told that by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Faith in what? Faith in a future work that God would do. And then we're told in the text, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of the gift. And what's interesting about that phrase is a lot of people like, how did how did Abel know that God accepted the sacrifice? And then how did Cain know that, that his was rejected? A lot of people believe that, well, the precedent established throughout Scripture, that as, as Abel's standing there, crying and weeping, that little guy, that, God, that fire came down from heaven to consume him. Fire, always showing God's acceptance, his, his, his respecting, God testifying. It's amazing that in Matthew 23, verse 35, Jesus calls Abel, he, he refers to him as righteous Abel. And note, what did Abel do? Nothing. Like Abel did nothing to earn a right standing with God. It was his faith and a sacrifice that yielded that status. Yeah, Abel was a sinner. But according to the Levitical law, it was always the sacrifice and never the worshiper that was examined. God accepted Abel and his offering. And in the end, Abel was found righteous before God, not because he was right, but because his offering was right. He placed his faith in the correct thing, and therefore, he was accepted. Now, in contrast to Abel, we're also told in our text that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, but God did not respect Cain and his offering. Again, just like with Abel, Cain and his offering are equally intertwined. His offering revealed an attitude, and his attitude determined his offering. And yet God, we're told, would not acknowledge either of them. And like with Abel, consider how this process would have played out for Cain. Just like Abel, he knows the time is coming. He knows that he needs to make an offering. He's a farmer, so he's good with his hands. And he's got these fields, but he probably takes a section of one of his fields, probably the best soil, the best location, and he's like, that's going to be where I'm going to grow this smorgasbord for God. 
And, and he tills up the soil real good, probably adds some manure, gets some fertilizer in there. He goes throughout his fields and he pills, pulls like seeds from the best plants. He's running the lines. He's making sure it's well irrigated. I mean, every day after his chores, he goes and he's tending this section of his field. And he's got all types of things planted perfectly. And then as things grow, he's weeding it and he's going and he's safeguarding it. for anim- He might even sleep out at the site just to make sure animals can't get in because this stuff, this is not the normal. This is not for humans. This is for God. I, he works hard. I mean, every day. The sweat of his brow, his back gets suntanned and burnt, his muscles bulge. I mean, farming's tough work. It requires a lot of energy, a lot of effort, some smarts. But that day comes, and so Cain, he's not going to take the whole, the, the whole crop, but he goes through with a basket, and he's pulling out just the best of the best of the best. I mean, this is literally the fruit of his labor. He's, he's putting the right vegetables, with the right fruits, with the right spices. I mean, man, when, when, when God ignites this baby, it's going to smell awesome. And then he goes, and he's, he's looking at this, and he's like, man, I've got to be honest, I did pretty good with this. I worked hard. It's got my blood, sweat, and tears in it. God's going to love it. And he goes on that day, and he goes up to the altar, and he places this basket. He's like, God... This is for you. I mean, this is my best. God, um, needs some fire. How long? Told his countenance fell. There was no fire, no acceptance. You see, the flaw in Cain's approach is first that he was seeking to come before God in a manner that God had not prescribed. Well-intentioned. Instead of placing his faith into a blood sacrifice like Abel, Cain was literally presenting as an offering to be accepted by God the fruit of his labor. Cain, honestly. And with, you, can, you can imagine a measure of sincerity. I mean, I can identify with Cain, can't you? Like Cain, when he came, he sincerely believed with all of his heart that his offering, offering his best, would be good enough to merit God's acceptance and his favor. But sadly, with the absence of fire, it didn't take long to realize that Cain wasn't able to earn something that God would only give. You see, Cain's best fell short. You know, regarding Cain, in 1 John 3, verse 12, we're we're really given a chilling depiction as to how God really viewed Cain's approach. We read, quote, Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother, why did he murder him? Because his works were evil. And his brother's? righteous. You know, in light of the fact that Cain really did come before God with an offering he hoped would be good enough to be accepted. I mean, keep in mind, again, that Cain, he wanted to please God. He wanted to make an offering. 
I mean, he worked hard. He put in the effort. He'd gone the extra mile. You don't do that if you don't care. He cared. He cared deeply. He had been sincere, sincere in what he was offering. But then isn't it radical with that in mind that God not only rejected Cain and his offering, but then God takes it another step further. He viewed all of it as being wicked and Cain's works as evil. That's mind-blowing. Let me explain why the Scriptures end up describing Cain with such hard terms. And I'll personalize it. Friend, any time that you seek to earn that which God only intends to give you, you are attempting to force God into a role He will always reject. In fact, it's really the pitfall of religious moralism. You see, Cain failed to understand what many very deeply religious people miss today. Your relationship with God is not based upon God receiving something from you. Works, offerings, a tithe, sacrifices, etc. Your relationship with God is not based upon God receiving something from you that in turn causes Him to give you something back in return. Well, if you do this and you do that, I will then in turn give you salvation or blessings or eternal life or peace or joy or fill in the blank. In fact, your relationship with God is founded solely upon God's grace being freely given to you apart from your involvement at all. He does it in spite of you, never because of you. You see, the reason that Cain's approach is so wicked here, and, and I would take it one step further, insulting to God, is that in his pride, what was Cain doing? Cain was trying to take the entire relationship structure and dynamic that God established. This is how I will relate to you. I give you receive. That's the dynamic. It all flows downhill. Cain was trying to do what? He was trying to reverse it. He was trying to flip it on its head. You see, Cain wanted to be the giver and then by default make God the receiver. But God will have none of that. See, Cain wanted to be the alpha. He wanted to be in charge. He wanted what God gave him to be a reciprocation of what he had given to God. It's evil. <laughs> As to why this is such a terrible approach, let me again quote a section of C.H. McIntosh's commentary. He writes, Man would fain make God a receiver instead of a giver. But this cannot be, for the Bible says it is more blessed to give than to receive. And assuredly, God must have the more blessed place. The great giver of all things cannot possibly need anything. Like, this is what's so amazing about God's grace. And why it's equally insulting when we attempt to approach God through our good works. God is in the business of giving. Of bestowing. He is and will always be the divine giver. It's an idea 
central to the gospel message itself. You see, God, He wants to lavish upon you blessings that you cannot earn. Blessings that you could never deserve. And your job is what? It's to humbly receive it. That's all He asks. God rejected Cain and his offering because Cain was attempting to exchange a grace-based, top-down, unmerited relationship with God for a work-reward, transactional arrangement. And why would Cain do that? It's the same reason many of us do it today. You know, as illustrated by Abel, please understand, grace... It gives no room for pride. Why? Because it demands of the person coming total humility. Grace lends no room for self. Why? Because it's fundamentally reliant upon an offering that God makes. It's reliant upon Him. So there's no role for you. Grace is based upon the sacrifice that God makes, and never one that you make. And in the end, grace demands the admission, a tough one, but a necessary one, that you're not worthy, and that your best will always fall short of the glory of God. Before we wrap things up, there there may be another way of viewing Cain's actions, subtly different, but one that demands our consideration. Now, an argument can be made that the core flaw in Cain's approach may be rooted in the fact that Cain had come to see a blessed life. He had come to see physical blessings as the evidence of God's favor. Let me explain how how you can kind of reach this this idea from the text. You know, in verse 2, we noted how Cain was a tiller of the ground. But what's then interesting is that in verse 12, upon doling out his judgment... God tells Cain what? He says, no longer shall the ground yield its strength to you. The word strength here is power. Like the implications seem to be that as a tiller of the ground, Cain had experienced a blessing that God had allowed the earth to yield an increase that was unique just to him. Cain had a green thumb. It came easy. Which is fascinating, really, when you couple that detail with the fact that in Genesis 3, verse 17, God had specifically cursed the ground for Adam's sake. Tragically, following the murder of his brother, that blessing was taken away from Cain. Now, if, in the end, Cain viewed his green thumb as the evidence that he and God were on good terms... Well, it would add a a deeper explanation for maybe his approach on this day. Like it could be that Cain wasn't coming to make an offering designed to earn the acceptance of God. It could be that maybe his entire offering was a way of seeking to maintain God's acceptance. And sadly, if that's the case, it's equally insulting to the grace and goodness of God, isn't it? You know, there's no question that God had blessed Cain's life. God had caused Cain's life to be fruitful. Where his father had been cursed, Cain had proved to be incredibly successful. And yet, regrettably, Cain, like so many people, had fallen into another legalistic trap of believing 
in return of his favor that God wanted something back. Something in return. You know, if either is the case, this morning, I pray that you come to the realization that God's grace is such an amazing concept because it declares that God's favor and God's love and God's goodness is given independent of you deserving it or meriting it or doing something to necessitate it. And not only is God's favor given that way, but it's also maintained the same way. It's provocative, but the gospel declares that you can do nothing to cause God to love you any more or any less than he already does right now. I want to say that again, and I want that, no matter what you've done this week, and you might have mucked it all up. It's true. I know some of you. It's a good likelihood. And that might have happened, and you came to church this morning beaten, feeling condemned. In fact, you might be home because you're filled with shame, and you're hiding. Please know, and I'll repeat, not only is there therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but today, in spite of all of that, Jesus' love for you hasn't changed one iota. It is not based on you or dependent on you. God's love hasn't changed. Now, if you get that, it's like, well, I can really live it up this week. God's love doesn't change. Well, you don't really know God's love then, nor have you experienced it. Because, man, when you experience unmerited favor, an unconditional love, there's no such thing as unconditional anything in this world, is there? In any concept, everything has a condition. God's love, once you receive it, it's free. And if you receive it, it doesn't waver, it doesn't lessen, it doesn't increase. You can't do things to cause God to be like, man, I am more proud of you today than I was when I died for you. Or you can't do anything to cause God to be like, man, I really regret that sacrifice I made. And that's a motivation. That's a change. That, that stirs you. I serve God and I live for God and I follow God, not because I have to, but because why wouldn't I? And the presence of such a love, of such grace. And ultimately, this story, recorded for us in Genesis 4, of Cain and Abel, it illustrates the greater conclusions of really all religious thought. Like we have an illustration here at the beginning of the Bible that sets the trajectory for it all. You see, these two men really do present two options, two ways in which we, the sinner, tries to approach a righteous God. You have two identical men raised in the same home, given the same amount of revelation, who end up employing two different strategies. On the one hand, you have Abel, a man that was willing to humble himself and accept the reality that he could do nothing. He could make no offering. There was no sacrifice that would make him right. No work would cause God to accept him. And so instead, Abel came and he placed his faith and an atoning sacrifice that God would make one day to pay for his sins. And what resulted? 
Abel and his offering were accepted by God, and he was declared to be righteous. But on the flip side, you have what Jude calls the way of Cain. That's reflected in very, very much every religious conviction. That presents works for you to do, offerings for you to make, things that you need to sacrifice in order for God to grant to you his favor. And yet the truth is Cain wasn't able. Tragically, his pride got in the way. He wanted to be found worthy. Whether Cain was seeking to earn God's favor or make an offering to maintain God's favor, either way, he ended up being rejected. He grew angry in the process, and he would find himself cursed for all of eternity. God wants to be the giver. Friend, there's no easy way to say it, but I do close with this. If you're working hard, making what you believe to be the necessary sacrifices for God to find you good enough. If you're offering the best fruit of your labor, hoping that God will in turn grant to you a righteous standing, you will experience the same fate as Cain. For by grace, a man is saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God.